Listen for a word of God this morning from John chapter 3, verse 16. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Word of God. Late one night. It may be the most important detail of the next 20 minutes, a story story situated in the cover of night. When the lights are out and the creatures come alive, when decent people go home and questionable characters go out, late one night, Nicodemus met Jesus. We pay attention to things that happen at the night in the Gospel of John, particularly John, who shapes stories with these pairs of opposites, light and darkness, life and death, truth and falsehood. The past three weeks, all of our presenters mentioned these themes. We call them dualisms. And while I, we, maybe Adventists, we resist dualistic shaping, I understand its powerful use in storytelling. Dark is where the wild things are. Nothing good happens in the dark, even in the Bible. John refers to the disciple of Jesus. The disciples are children of the light. So it's even more interesting that when Nicodemus meets Jesus, the two teachers sit in a darkened nighttime classroom. One is credentialed, recognized, a kind of educator of the year type, and one is barely known, but his reputation is on the rise. If you can make water turn to wine at a wedding, we see you. Here's the text, John 3, verse 2. He, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. No one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. We don't need graduate education to ask the first questions, right? Who in the world are you? What what is the truth about you, Jesus? The evidence is mounting and making less and less sense. Already a circle of disciples call Jesus rabbi, and already John the Baptist is across the Jordan River. He calls Jesus Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he saw a heavenly dove descend and surround Jesus. It's probably the water turned to wine for the wedding, though, that got Nicodemus up and out of the house that night. Nicodemus, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the Council of Elders for the Jews. Likely he's come from a fresh conversation with his colleagues. Nicodemus knows a few things, text and tradition. He knows philosophy and theology and history and literature. Think of beloved mentors or professors, the ones we've been listening to in January. Think of the wise people in your life. Who's your Yoda? Really, like Nicodemus, is a, he's a Yoda. He comes by night. Instead of asking Jesus, who are you? He says to Jesus, you're a teacher who's come from God. So Jesus answers him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born from above after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born There are patterns in the Gospel of John, and now we're in the middle of one, a statement, misunderstanding, and clarification. Nicodemus and Jesus, they're engaged in a rabbinical banter, really. It's not the only pattern of conversation. The content matters, too. 
they're working with tricks of the trade and they press the meaning of the statement. They carry it so far that it must be excluded. For example, how could you be born a second time? Are you going to crawl into your mother's womb? Everyone knows that's ridiculous. That's banter. Born again. In the original language, it can mean born another time or born from the sky. Nicodemus goes for that extreme interpretation. How can I be born a second time? Jesus keeps pressing this pattern, and you'll read it again and again in John's storytelling. Statement, misunderstanding, clarification. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Born of water and Spirit. Baptism, this outward expression that someone's taking God seriously, it has an internal parallel, an internal journey. Get on that journey, Jesus says. Notice, notice, experience, imagine, participate in the kingdom of God. It's hiding in plain sight. Philip Yancey calls it rumors of another world. There there are always supernatural options around us all the time. They're, They're not the first, the most obvious, the popular, the easy options. We have to learn the pattern of God's agendas. Back to the text, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, to Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? There's one implied answer. This is another rabbinical technique. Nicodemus, he may be an award-winning educator. He'll always be a student. There's one implied answer. You don't get it, Nicodemus. As we've settled into the teaching of our guests this January, to tell the truth, church, has your head kind of hurt a little bit? The cognitive work, the kind of classroom pace of information, all of the presenters said about the same thing to me. This topic, we would normally unpack it maybe in a 10-week quarter in the classroom, not not a 30-minute sermon. Truth, it's a central idea in the subject of philosophy. It's a central idea in the subject of theology. Truth is a central idea in history and social sciences. It's a big topic. We can admit this. Listen, philosophy of religion, that was my first class when I returned back to the university here as an adult. Been out of the classroom for a long time. My first class, philosophy of religion with John Webster, La Sierra Hall, room 204. How how can I forget? How can I, I can never forget because my stomach sank on day one. I am in so much trouble. I, I literally scribbled in my notes, in my notebook there, I'm in over my head. Taking Greek upstairs in the classroom upstairs, that seemed simple compared to learning the vocabulary of philosophy. Nicodemus is one part philosopher. He's an award-winning educator, and he'll always be a student. It's why he searches for Jesus in the middle of night, because people are watching and reputations can be ruined. We judge like that, don't we? Pastor, can I, can I meet you? But just not at the church office. I don't want anyone to see me. Yeah, we judge like that. 
Most every encounter with Jesus happens in the day. The woman at the Samaritan well, that will be in the next chapter, John 4, that questionable woman living with a man who's not her husband and who's divorced five times, and she's from the enemy clan, the Samaritans. See, we expect such a woman to be sneaking around at night, and we expect the prominent Nicodemus to make a lunchtime appointment at a neighborhood cafe. But the Bible pushes back. Watch. Check yourself. The lady of night visits in the bride of day, and the scholar of the day sneaks out at night. Watch yourself. Bias usually begins on the ground level. Bias usually begins with misinformation, with including a little slander or gossip or stripping people of their voice and their agency and their credibility while granting other people credibility, the power of being heard or believed for no reason at all. Nothing fair or right about it. It simply is. Bias, it usually begins on the ground level. This is a kind of truth and falsehood we've not yet addressed in our short series. Relational lies, character falsehoods, divisive, misleading, false content about each other that we don't take the time to correct. Rebecca Solnit call these, calls these algorithms of oppression, people with status shaping narratives about people without status. In John 8, for example, there's a woman that tradition calls a woman caught in adultery without ever hearing her story, learning her name, entering into her life, because, because truthfully calling her a woman forced into sex trafficking, that gets sent back to the editorial board. Let the understated subtlety of stories seemed together side by side be noticed. The respected teacher Nicodemus and the disgraced woman at the well, side by side. Late one night, Nicodemus finds Jesus. You're not like normal teachers, he says to Jesus. Why? Verse 8, the wind blows where it chooses and you... Nicodemus, you hear the sound of it, but you don't see where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. There are good agendas of God, deep, critical, eternal agendas of God that we've not yet understood. Oh, this is a hard teaching. Nicodemus's kind of secure, certain, reasoned, religious, careful, carefully crafted life, his life is undone. If I'm truthful, my life is undone with this teaching from Jesus. The wind will blow. The Spirit will be. It won't ask for permission or pause for an opinion. The Spirit will move. Spirit possibilities, they outdo airtight certainty every time. Expect to be undone. We've got some practice at this now, really, about a year of practice. Expect to be undone. Get comfortable not knowing, Jesus says and watch for the wind to blow. On my almost 13th birthday, our family spent several weeks together in a motorhome touring the United States. It turns out that that journey is recorded here in a, in a little uh, handwritten diary. And the truth is that the diaries of 12 and 13 year olds should never be read by anyone else. <laughs> and love the 12 and 13 year olds in your life while we're at it. While we were on our family trip, one of our stops was in the state of Utah. 
I write about Utah a lot in this little journal. I can't figure out the reason for the state to exist until we get to Salt Lake City and the Mormon Tabernacle grounds. One day we toured. The tour guide spoke about the beginnings of the Mormon faith and about a man named Joseph Smith and about some mysterious experience in a field with plates of gold underground and about a prophet leading their church and, and about truth and being God's unique people, about the importance of health. I knew from my Adventist Christian upbringing about a man named Joseph, and I knew about an experience walking in a field in, in the 1840s, and I knew about a prophet leading a church, and I knew about truth and being God's unique people. When we got out of the museum, I turned to my father, and I asked him the one question that had to be answered. Well, who are these people? And who are we if they're who they say they are? There's something is off here. They have a prophet. We have a prophet. They had a mystical experience walking in a field. We had a mystical experience walking in a field. We're right. Right, Dad? Are they right? Maybe because the tourist center is not the best place to answer such probing questions, my dad just tipped his chin to the side and shrugged his shoulders. It was so deeply unsettling. You don't know? You don't know the answer to my question? So the truth is, we have a love affair with knowledge, with knowing. Most of us do. Sometimes we want to know what we can know, so we will know what we need to know. We kind of stock up on knowledge. Like my mother, if one pie plate is good, 20 means you're prepared. For a variety of reasons, we want to know things to keep our loved ones safe, advancing, well, whole, alive. Sometimes this internal angst is motivated by salvation questions. As one man said to me years ago, well, you've never had cancer, Pastor. You don't know what it's like to know you'll be dying soon. Maybe you can't relate to my, my thirst for knowledge. How do I know? How do I know I know the right truth before I die? I said to him, do you know God? Do you know God loves you? He said, well, of course, but, but I'm, talking about, I'm talking about the end of time. And I said, I am too. If you know you're beloved of God, you have everything you need. Somebody listening today needs to hear this again. Today is not too early to lay down our salvation burdens. As a denomination birthed on an erroneous claim to know what we can't possibly know, the second coming of Jesus, and, and with ancestors who picked up the pieces praying never to repeat that error, as a faith community ridiculed in public for outrageous truth claims, and if you want to be reminded, just do a search for the Millerites and the second coming and look at the cartoons and the satire and the, the jokes that were made of Millerites sitting on their rooftops as they sold all their belongings and bundled up and waited for God to rescue. Perhaps Adventist Christians can exercise empathy towards current conspiracy theory cousins. That small percentage of people, the population in our world today, who are finding these radical conspiracy theories compelling. I have a file that I started in March 6 of 2020, almost a year ago, a week before we left this sanctuary and to shelter at home at the beginning of the pandemic. 
I have a file I opened and I made a note to myself, check QAnon, check this book, check this reference, talk to the church about this. What comfort can Millerite Adventist Christians offer? How are we susceptible? Why is emotionally laden content so irresistible in our world? Warn of algorithm manipulations to garner attention. Warn of YouTube algorithms that, that conclude people are drawn to content much more extreme than what they started with. They're drawn to incendiary content. So our online searches give us what we think we want. Lies are profitable and corporations pursue profit. Warn the church. That's a note I made in March of 2020. I have not mentioned this for a year. I'm sorry if you or the ones you love are among those entranced by recent and radical ideas in our country, especially when the content is blurred with Christian faith. I'm sorry, church. See, when we read the Gospel of John as a citizen in 2021, when we've never... when. <laughs> Truthfully, 2021, when we've never had more access to unregulated content, more time at home, more screen time across all the age categories. The social scientists and the information scientists, they told us we were already here in 2016. Remember, that's the year the Oxford English Dictionary selected the word of the year, post-facts. Objective facts are less influential in shaping opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief. Post-facts, that's already four years ago. We're not in a new space as much as we're in an intensified space. Maybe our love affair is less with knowledge and it's more with information. And, and, and now we live with this frenetic, compulsive pace of misinformation. And we are missing steps. We're missing critical steps we need to take. Who are these authors and who funds this information and who checked the sources and the facts and who is this benefiting and what, ha what happens by these increased algorithms and on and on and on. Who is writing this stuff? I remember when I was teaching a class at the university several years ago, a preaching class, a student turned in a preaching manuscript, an assignment, but failed to remove the URL, the web internet address, off of the papers. I could tell exactly where the content came from. I, I mean, at least I appreciated knowing, right? I, I appreciated knowing the sermon writer got a decent grade. The student, not so much. Who are all of these sources that we're reading? And does the Gospel of John, the Jesus of the nighttime meeting with Nicodemus, does he speak anything into our current cultural crisis? The Gospel of John shows us every shade and every character, by the way, and gaslighting and fact bullies and imperial truthers and running towards untruth. The Gospel of John shows us destructive, destructively false truth tellers and humans caught up in all of these options. A first move when we're caught up in all these options is to reconcile with God. Jesus asks Nicodemus that night to exchange his certainty for trust. You don't know all the things, Nicodemus, so surrender to God and listen to others. Surrender to God and listen to others. Here sits a smart guy leaning into the darkness and asking questions of it. We'll meet Nicodemus two more times in the story of Gospel of John. 
the last time will be at the very end when the dead body of Jesus needs to be removed from the cross. Nicodemus helps lay him to rest. Does he see the light then? Or is he still in the darkness? The readers of John's gospel are in suspense. It's only when we, you and I, read Resurrection Sunday after that long, dark Sabbath that we learn darkness is not dark to God. I get a sense Nicodemus befriends the dark. It's the dark that's given him clarity and honesty. It's the dark that brings truth and healing. Truth, this large, weighty topic of ultimate significance. It's never solved in three songs in a sermon, by the way. So I invite you, please go back, go to the website and the sermon archives and listen again to our three presenters from January. Let it sink in this topic of practicing truth. Keep track of what you're learning. Share it with someone. Ask more questions. What are you hearing? And on Tuesday night this week at 7 p.m., we'll have all three of these lecturers, Dr. Yee, Dr. Jackson, Dr. Webster, all three will join us Tuesday at the text, 7 p.m. It is so simple to find us on Zoom. Visit our, our uh, website. It'll be on the front page of our church website, 7 p.m., set aside 60 to 90 minutes. This Tuesday night, it's the chance we have to listen to the presenters dialogue about what they learned during January and how the topic is settling for them. Oh, this is not over. I would rather know I'm in the dark trusting God than pretend I'm in the light trusting myself or others. Come back to the text with Jesus as Jesus tops off the conversation with Nicodemus. He uses the word love for the first time in the Gospel of John. That word will be exploded over the next chapters. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Truth is always embodied and embedded, even in the world's most famous Bible verse, when it comes to us embodied by Jesus and Nicodemus and embedded in a nighttime conversation about truth. When we're tempted to lift these verses from the Bible, to lift John 3.16 for a freeway sign or throw it on a, a poster for a protest march or, or on a t-shirt, or we cannot divorce the text from a lived journey with Jesus. Questions of truth? They're not resolved in theory. They're not floating out here somewhere. They're resolved in practice, in the living of our lives, the living of these ideas about truth. The tr these ideas merge with our experiences of truth. The God who comes close in Jesus animates this, puts theory into practice on the ground in the world. It shouldn't surprise us when Jesus tells the disciples he's leaving that he uses this language that we read last week, when he says to the disciples, I must go, where I'm going, you cannot come, and there's a frantic panic. Where are you going? We'll follow you. Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Notice it doesn't say, I am the truth, the life, and the way. It says, I am the way. The only time Jesus uses this description of a road or a path, a way, symbolic language referring to a way of life. The, the early Christians in the book of Acts, they're called the people on the way. 
Jesus says, I am the way. The ways in which we follow Jesus are precisely how we experience the truth of Jesus. If we feel a bit in the dark, Jesus might tell us to come on the way and the truth will come to. Surrender to God, surrender to Jesus. Get on the path, get on the path of compassion and mercy and generosity and patience. Get on the path of forgiveness and long-suffering and commitment. Get on the path of humility. We don't have to do all of them this week. Choose one. Get on the way with Jesus. And in 2021, Jesus might say to disciples, get on the path of truth-telling. We are living new chapters of an old, old conflict, friends. The human crisis is a disinformation crisis. It starts in Genesis chapter 3 with a crafty servant, the first disinformation campaign. Who told you you would die? You will not surely die. And the Creator God coming to the creatures and saying to them, Who told you you were naked? And then one of the most tender and comforting scenes in Scripture, from where I draw my confidence, God the seamstress stitches stoles of skin and wraps protection around bodies bound east of Eden for an excursion. We are living in new chapters of an old, old conflict. Maybe disciples of Jesus are honestly needed for something good in the world. Amen.